Pee-wee the Piccolo, the story of a lifelike musical instrument, was featured on the first 45 RPM record manufactured in 1948 by RCA at its Sherman Avenue facility in Indianapolis. May I join you, whispered the oboe? For many years, the plant was an anchor for the city's Near East Side. In its heyday, it was one of the largest plants for RCA records in the country. Literally employed 6,500 people in well-paying union jobs, ran three shifts of workers that were producing all sorts of products for RCA, whether it was records or whether it was televisions or radios or electronic components, were all produced out of this particular site. And then this happened. Over the years, RCA began to ship more and more operations to overseas, and some of those operations to Mexico, and the plant began to decline up until the late 1990s where it was sold to Thompson Consumer Electronics, and then shortly thereafter actually was closed. For a brief period of time, there were a couple of different developers and entrepreneurs that were trying to kind of create a mini industrial park. But just given the size and the magnitude of the property, it was really well beyond what any one group could do. So the Sherman Park ended up closing in early 2000 and has remained vacant for a number of years as kind of the ownership structure, you know, went through bankruptcy and through a trustee and those kinds of things. That story, told by James Taylor, the CEO of Indianapolis's John H. Bonner Neighborhood Centers, is probably familiar at this point. Since the 2016 presidential election, stories about shuttered factories and lost jobs in the Rust Belt have captured the nation's attention and shifted the narrative around America's economic challenges. And then there are the political implications. If I were in office right now, Carrier would not be leaving Indiana. That I can tell you. That I can tell you. In 2016, Donald Trump seized on plans from the air conditioner manufacturer Carrier to move jobs from its Indianapolis plant to Mexico to make a national statement about globalization and American jobs. But Indianapolis is not the only place in America facing economic challenges, nor are industrial workers the only people struggling to prosper in an otherwise growing economy. Last year, the U.S. economy closed its recession-era jobs gap, meaning enough jobs now exist to make up for those lost in the recession and account for workers who have entered the labor force since. And in one of the most highly publicized indicators of the nation's economic health, the stock market continues to climb. Yet questions are increasingly being asked about who is sharing in that success. Although the real median household income has grown in the last few years, it is not significantly higher than in the late 1990s, and incomes are actually lower in many areas of the country. Last year, Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program worked with regional economic development organizations in three regions to explore this conundrum and determine how to address these growing disparities that threaten both individual livelihoods and regional prosperity. The organizations were the Indy Chamber in Indianapolis, Indiana, transitioning from a Midwestern industrial hub to a tech and innovation economy the Nashville Chamber of Commerce and booming country music capital Nashville, Tennessee, and the San Diego Regional Economic Development Corporation in coastal, innovation-rich San Diego, California. This is the first of three special episodes of the Brookings Cafeteria podcast that will delve into the Inclusive Economic Development Lab. 
looking at these regions, their challenges and potential solutions that could be applied in these cities and others. I'm Fred Dews, and I'll be joined in these episodes by Rachel Barker, a policy analyst and engagement strategist with the Metropolitan Policy Program, who conducted the interviews in this series. You'll also hear from Brookings fellow Joseph Perla, author of Opportunity for Growth, How Reducing Barriers to Economic Inclusion Can Benefit Workers, Firms, and Communities. And we'll be joined by Brookings non-resident senior fellow Brad McDiarmid and Ryan Donahue, a project analyst who, like Rachel, Joseph, and Brad, worked on Brookings Inclusive Economic Development Lab and, with Rachel, authored Committing to Inclusive Growth, Lessons from the Inclusive Economic Development Lab. Finally, you'll hear directly from local leaders, residents, experts, and journalists from the three metro areas. In this episode, the first in the series, you'll learn more about Indianapolis, Nashville, and San Diego as the residents face the challenges and opportunities of technological and demographic change. In episodes two and three, you'll learn more about what economic development leaders uncovered while working with Brookings and who they met along the way. And lastly, we'll explore the steps these regions are taking to address these challenges. But we'll start back in Indianapolis. Here's Rachel speaking with James Taylor. It sounds like at its heyday, Sherman Park was a real anchor in the area. Could you talk about the impact on the community when it closed? Yeah, it was kind of a slow death over a 15-year period of time as jobs were kind of cut over that period of time. But, I mean, when you think about the Near East Side, we're really about 16,000 households, right? Population might have been 50,000 in 1990, but it's really 16,000 households. And if you think about 6,500 well-paid union jobs supporting those households, you know, it was the driver of the economics of the neighborhood. So over that 15-year period or 20-year period of time where it began its decline, you could see the rest of the neighborhood kind of decline along with it. Businesses begin to close. Residents begin to move out of the neighborhood. Other places kind of had substandard uses. The predatory lenders begin to kind of creep into the neighborhood. And just kind of, you know, I don't want to understate this, but, you know, kind of just the perception of the Near East Side was that's a place of lost hope. And that's a place that you don't want to end up in because there's not a future for the community. So as much as it was about the economics, it was also about kind of the changes of perception, both within the neighborhood as well as external to it because this had been such a key cog in terms of the vitality of our community. Factory closures and downsizing haven't just affected the Near East Side, an area which you'll hear more about in Episode 2. Since the mid-1990s, Indianapolis has shed over 30,000 manufacturing jobs. Among American metropolitan areas, only Cleveland and Detroit have fared worse. At the same time, the region has added lower-paying jobs in industries like transportation distribution and logistics and healthcare. Although Indy has seen wages begin to recover in recent years, from 2006 to 2015, the median wage declined by nearly 12%. Poverty is up 80% since the early 2000s. But that isn't the only story to tell. Think of Indianapolis, a region that a little over 2 million people call home, and you might recall a place that packs the stands around the Indy 500 racetrack every May. Or perhaps is the home of major corporations like Eli Lilly, 
that have turned out innovations in life sciences and pharmaceuticals. Drew Classic has studied the region and the broader state at Indiana University's Public Policy Institute for over 25 years. Generally, I've kind of decided that we're a really interesting place in that we fit the Rust Belt profile geographically, but we kind of fit the Sun Belt profile when you look at our growth patterns. We're not on navigable water in central Indiana, one of the bigger cities in the United States that isn't. So we didn't really grow as fast during that first round of industrialization immigration that occurred before World War II. Most of our growth occurred after World War II when interstate systems became an important part of commerce. And so while we have manufacturing and we're surrounded by manufacturing, we also kind of look as much like a Charlotte as we do like a Detroit, if that makes any sense. So Indy has experienced some of the challenges of the Rust Belt. We've made an incredible amount of progress visually and project-wise. But while we're doing that, we kind of suffer for the same challenge as the rest of the Midwest, where when you look at meaningful statistics like changes in wages, educational attainment, we've actually lost ground. And so I kind of think of it as we're driving 55 miles an hour in central Indiana, Indiana, and the Midwest, and the rest of the country appears to be driving about 70. So we're getting there, we're making progress, but we're not making that progress at quite the same rate as the rest of the country. Alongside progress that hasn't gone unnoticed by other cities. Civic leaders from other metropolitan areas come to ask us how we've gotten things done. And I think that's kind of the biggest change in my life. When I first moved here, it never dawned on me that people from St. Louis, from Charlotte, from Nashville, from Cincinnati, from Cleveland, from Detroit, would one day show up in Indianapolis and say, wow, what you have is amazing. How did you actually figure out this and get it done? Indianapolis is also one of the fastest-growing tech economies outside of major coastal hubs, according to Brookings Research. And nothing symbolizes that more than Salesforce. Hundreds of new high-wage jobs in the tech field are on the way to Indianapolis. Salesforce, which acquired Exact Target a few years ago, is expanding. Today, San Francisco-based Salesforce occupies 11 floors of Indy's tallest skyscraper, now renamed Salesforce Tower, where hundreds of new tech jobs will be located in the coming years. The company's high-profile CEO, Mark Benioff, has even hinted that Indianapolis could make a prime spot for Amazon's second headquarters. Michael Huber is president and CEO of the Indy Chamber, and before that served as the city's deputy mayor. He has spent nearly 20 years working in state and local policy circles in Indianapolis. He spoke with Rachel in our studio. Over the last year, it seems like we've seen two kind of big picture stories at the national level about Indianapolis. On the one hand, the loss of manufacturing jobs, most famously at Carrier. And on the other hand, you know, the significant investment by tech firms like Salesforce, you know, in your building where you're located downtown. How do you kind of square those two stories about the region? Those two stories are symbolic of the economic change that our city's going through, and I know Indianapolis isn't alone. So on one hand, it's that rapid loss of manufacturing that served multiple generations of people and families, and then is the rise of tech jobs. India is specifically strong among tech jobs in this tech marketing sector. Exact Target was a company that was bought for $2 billion by Salesforce. Salesforce has continued to grow their presence in Indianapolis. And yet, on many of our manufacturing companies, be they automotive or other, 
have been automating, have been reducing their employment now for many years. To the extent that we have manufacturing job increases, they have been with companies like Rolls-Royce, companies that are very sophisticated, companies that are highly, highly automated, and our advanced manufacturing industry is looking more and more like tech. And while those are all very exciting developments, they are creating significant disruption in the region. You mentioned the idea of disruption. There's an estimate from McKinsey that 49% of time spent on work activities could be automated with existing technologies. How do you think about that? There's been certainly a wake-up call in our region that if our education and workforce systems don't catch up and adapt to the rate of technological change that you reference, we could be left behind. There's a scenario in which Indianapolis, having had a significant manufacturing base for generations, could win out in the future with the types of developments that you mentioned, the automation you mentioned. But that's really what's key to us winning is by educating a higher and higher percentage of our population, the people who live in Indianapolis, who a generation or two generations ago would have had a high likelihood of getting a high-paying job with just a high school degree working at the GM plant or the Ford plant, and today need some form of education beyond high school, maybe it's one- to two-year technical degrees, to be able to access the kind of increasingly automated jobs that you reference. And what we would like to see as a future for Indianapolis is where manufacturing continues to be a strong sector, even though it's becoming more automated, because we are successfully capturing a lot of the R&D associated with manufacturing. But like I said earlier, that requires business to really engage with our education and workforce systems and help them adapt more quickly. Right. And I think, you know, that leads up to this project that your organization, the Indy Chamber, worked on with Brookings, you know, thinking about how you can begin to prepare populations and address those disruptions. The lab focused on inclusive economic development. Why was that something the chamber was interested in exploring? Inclusive economic development is a term that we are using much more widely as we talk about the changes in the region. I think the reason is it's to reconcile two things that you mentioned earlier. That is, some industries like tech, life sciences, agriculture, and ag tech, which is a significant industry for us, the changes in manufacturing, are doing very well. We're very fortunate to have many internationally successful companies, and yet we see the poverty rate increasing. We see more and more people being left out of this growing economy. And how do you reconcile, how do you bridge those two things? And both things are true. By certain regional metrics, Indianapolis looks like Denver and Austin. And by other regional metrics, we look like former industrial cities like Cleveland and Detroit. And yet both things are true. And for us as a public-private organization that's existed for nearly 130 years, The mainstream of business, whether they're CEOs of large companies or business owners, see these changes happening and they see the growth, but then they also see the disruption and they're looking for answers. They're looking for ways to sort of get their minds around the problem and they're looking for solutions, ways that we can move the needle on poverty, ways that we can move the needle on getting more and more of our residents into careers that provide some type of a growth trajectory. This question of how more people and places can continue to succeed in a rapidly changing economy 
is not unique to Indianapolis. Joseph Perla is a fellow at Brookings. Here he is speaking with Rachel. So if you look at these national level economic numbers as measured by the unemployment rate or the stock market, even recently, if you look at wage growth, it looks pretty good, at least compared to the post-recession period. The challenge is that most of the benefits of that growth are not reaching all Americans. So we have a highly unequal growth distribution. New evidence suggests that the bottom 50% of earners, so that's half of American workers, have experienced essentially zero before-tax income growth since 1980. So the once-assured prospect that children would enjoy higher incomes than their parents has really diminished. So if you were a kid born in 1940, you had basically a 90% chance of having a higher salary at age 30 than your parents. If you were born in 1980, that share declined to 50%. So it's basically a coin flip at this point that Americans will earn more than their parents, and that has a lot to do with the fact that earnings simply aren't growing for a good chunk of American workers. Economic outcomes for Americans vary across place, but Brookings research found that between 2010 and 2015, only eight of the nation's 100 largest metro areas generated inclusive growth that added jobs, raised productivity, lifted middle-class incomes, and reduced poverty rates for whites and people of color. And a main theme of this project in the paper you wrote, Opportunity for Growth, is this relationship between growth and inclusion. How are they connected? Right. So the tagline for the paper is essentially that economic and racial inclusion can enhance economic growth at the local level, but the reverse is also true, that growth matters for opportunity inclusion. You have to have both sides of that coin. And so the first part of that argument is essentially the following. A regional economy's success right now is highly dependent on its people, right? We're a human capital and innovation-based economy. So this is about folks just becoming kind of qualified employees at one level and having the education and skills to do that. But then there's a subset that may go on to become innovators or entrepreneurs or business owners that have, you know, incredible contributions to the economy. And, you know, if you have barriers to entry to those paths, essentially if you have exclusion based on race or class, that acts as a barrier to people maximizing that productive potential. And because metro areas are dependent on their people, you're essentially limiting the productive potential of the place as well. And, you know, we have all sorts of new evidence, mainly from a group of economists led by Raj Chetty, that there's, you know, pretty significant differences in equality of opportunity across U.S. metro areas. And that metro areas that have greater equality of opportunity, so higher upward mobility, actually experience higher aggregate economic growth as well, we think, because they're maximizing the potential of their population, which is absolutely critical in this modern era. So how does this connect to who we worked with in the lab? So the lab was really about going and working with three communities and specifically these economic development organizations. And so one question is, why go local at all, right? Like if taxes and trade matter for some of these broader macroeconomic phenomena around inequality, like what's the local role? And the reality, I think, is twofold. The first is that national policy right now is not focused on an inclusive growth agenda. In fact, the tax reform is going to exacerbate inequality. But moreover, the organizations that end up trying to ensure that communities are experiencing growth and inclusion operate locally. So you have 
for decades, workforce development boards and community development organizations, social service agencies, faith groups, and other civic institutions that have essentially been leading the nation's bottom-up fight against social inequities, right? So this is since the war on poverty. But inclusion actors are also complemented by these growth actors, which is really, you know, anchored by employers and business leadership groups and economic development organizations that represent employers that focus on the overall growth of local economies. And these folks have led on job creation efforts, strengthening industries, promoting overall growth. And the challenge is that historically they've kind of operated on separate tracks, driven by different cultures, politics. They pursue distinct goals, respond to non-overlapping metrics. And this dynamic fails to grasp the interplay between opportunity and growth that I mentioned earlier, right? So research has shown that these things are fundamentally linked, but our institutions are still playing catch up. So the purpose of the lab was to actually kind of push these institutions to rally around what we would consider a shared goal of inclusive growth. San Diego, California is a sunny oceanside metro area of 3.3 million people, famous for its craft breweries and fish tacos. But the region is also an innovation powerhouse, cutting-edge research institutions like the University of California, San Diego, the Salk Institute, and the semiconductor and telecommunications company Qualcomm are all based there. Mary Walshock is Associate Vice Chancellor for Public Programs and Dean of Extension at the University of California, San Diego and an expert on regional economics and civics. Here she is speaking with Rachel. Well into the early 1950s, our economy thrived primarily on military defense contracting and tourism, and with that, of course, housing and other kinds of developments. What happened is with the end of World War II, increasingly the city fathers, and particularly the city council and chamber of commerce, were worrying, right, about where would prosperity come from. And they pivoted in the direction of research and development. And that's a really interesting fact about San Diego, because it was in the middle 1950s that the city fathers began to rezone land for what was called R&D and light industry and aggressively go after think tanks and a University of California campus and a lot of organizations that would add value in terms of science and technology, which would, in fact, feed the military as we moved then into the Cold War era. So San Diego has had a long romance with research and development because of aeronautics, because of submarines, because of communications in the military era, and also in the health arena, which translated into zoning decisions and active efforts to get organizations like the Salk Institute to locate here to start a new University of California campus with a very heavy research emphasis. We attracted very entrepreneurial scientists to come to what was basically a barren mesa, today known as the Torrey Pines Mesa, 
to build institutions that would do new kinds of research in very interdisciplinary and emerging fields. And so it was a very entrepreneurial science culture. And frankly, by the 1980s, people in San Diego were saying, couldn't we do a better job of commercializing a lot of the science that was coming out of these institutions to enhance our competitiveness? And that's when you saw the growth of companies like Qualcomm and Hybritech, which eventually begat IDEC and Illumina and Viasat and Viasite. And so you had this phenomenal growth of clusters based on science and technology, advanced technology products and components of products that created a whole new set of clusters that are globally traded. And so the evolution from a kind of military-focused R&D culture to a more business-to-business, commercially-focused R&D cluster development strategy in the 80s and 90s has now put us in the top ranks of innovation economies, both in the United States but globally as well. One thing that's really clear is that this evolution did not happen by chance. In fact, you've written a book, Invention and Reinvention, that talks about that transformation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What was it about the civic culture and the leadership in the region that provided that sort of secret sauce to become the innovation economy? Yes. I think, first of all, because of the importance of science and technology, to the development of modern warfare, I hate to be so blunt, (laughs) and, you know, the success, if you will, of the Manhattan Project and related aerospace projects that allowed us to eventually exceed the Germans in science and technology. They were way ahead of us in the 30s and 40s. There was an understanding in this community of the importance of R&D to the military as well as to national security. But your question is a much more significant one. There was also a civic culture, right, that favored a kind of boosterism and a kind of confidence in the ability of small business owners, of real estate developers, of industrial park developers, of bankers and manufacturing suppliers to come together in organizations like the Chamber of Commerce or in economic development alliances to lobby in Washington and to lobby in Sacramento for benefits to come to the city of San Diego. And so there's been this collaborative civic culture, if you will, built on small businesses. In our book, we contrast it with the industrial Midwest, where you had the growth of large corporations, you know, U.S. Steel, General Electric, General Motors. And so you had big government, big corporations, a very different kind of business culture. In San Diego, Because of the long history of military contracting, we didn't have a lot of Fortune 500 companies. We had small businesses that worked 
directly together. They sort of collaborated to compete in order to bring big contracts, bring big organizations that were in the shipbuilding industry to San Diego. And it proved to be very successful. And that culture prevails even today, so that you have lots and lots of cross-industry, cross-disciplinary organizations that focus on issues related to research and development and business growth or cluster growth that will be good for the region. And they often transcend their parochial interests of their individual company to really focus on the needs of the sector, if it's life sciences, wireless, renewables, And it's a very, very interesting dynamic. San Diego's innovation economy has helped build a prosperous region over the last few decades, ranking near the top of U.S. metros in upward mobility, according to research by the Stanford economist Raj Chetty and his colleagues. But the innovation economy doesn't include everyone in the region. And located on the U.S.-Mexico border, San Diego is on the front lines of demographic change that will affect the entire country in the coming decades. Janice Brown is vice chair of the San Diego Regional Economic Development Corporation. The San Diego Regional EDC is a former donor to Brookings. The innovation economy is very sexy and it gets a lot of high profile in the media and it deserves that. And it does shine a very positive light on San Diego, but it only employs 10% of the region's workforce. And as a result of that, it also has very significant educational components that go along with the innovation economy. It's an environment for people with engineering degrees and PhDs, et cetera. And that environment typically has not been one that has been representative of the entire community of San Diego. San Diego is already a majority-minority, which seems kind of an odd term to say because if it's a majority, is it really the minority? But we're already a majority-minority community with all the diversity in the community. And even though that's the case, we still don't have our minority communities really having the educational background necessary to fill all the unfilled jobs in the innovation economy. In fact, although nearly half of San Diegans will be Latino by 2050, only 17% currently hold a bachelor's degree or higher. This gap equates to a significant regional challenge to ensure industries have the workers to succeed. Brown says the EDC can play a key role in addressing these types of issues. It's going to take for this type of issue, which will deal with a lot of difficult issues and actually shine a light on parts of San Diego that people may not want to look at is going to require that people join forces together to look at the math, to look at the data, and figure out a solution that's going to be a win-win for the community. And I think if San Diego does it right, we could actually be a shining light for other communities because we're not the only one facing these demographic shifts. And some people want to take the demographic shifts and use it as a wedge between communities. The smart play is to think about it in a way to make your community better and cohesive and collaborative. And, you know, one of the things that I heard is that if you divide people, it's going to be hard to govern them. So what we're looking to do is to say, okay, let's collaborate together with communities and say, look, this is what we all need to do in our communities. 
we got to get our kids educated. We got to do things to help us because these are the jobs that are the highest paying jobs. And frankly, if you're living in San Diego, you need a pretty decent paying job to live here. And finally, you may know Nashville for Taylor Swift and its famed Honky Tonk Highway on Lower Broadway Street. But country music, as important as it may be, is hardly the only cause for this city's bragging rights. New at 6 tonight, there's no doubt the city of Nashville is experiencing unprecedented growth. In the aftermath of the Great Recession, Nashville grew jobs by a whopping 19%, placing it in the top five among the largest U.S. metropolitan areas, and along the way, earning a new nickname when the New York Times called it the It City in a 2013 article. Over several decades, the region has cultivated this coveted status by specializing in high-growth industries like healthcare. And in 2016 alone, Nashville attracted over 30,000 new residents. But even booming success doesn't prevent disparities. Even as jobs increased rapidly after the Great Recession, wages fell nearly 2%. Race and educational attainment are among the dividing lines of economic success. And with this rapid growth, one of the region's most celebrated assets, its affordability, faces significant market pressure. David Plazas is the Director of Opinion and Engagement at Nashville's Tennessean newspaper and the USA Today Network Tennessee. Last year, Plazas and a colleague launched a special series in the Tennessean exploring these tensions. Here he is speaking with Rachel. You've kind of touched on this two-sided economic narrative in Nashville, where on one hand, it's one of the fastest growing metro economies in the country. It has this country music scene and culture that has really seized the nation's attention. And on the other hand, significant portions of the population are struggling for a variety of reasons. Could you kind of dig into that a little deeper and paint a picture of what that juxtaposition looks like and some of those dimensions that you've explored through your series? Absolutely. Traditionally, it was thought that Nashville was a very affordable place to live. And that's how it was for many, many years when it was known for country music. And even with its bigger industries like healthcare and automotive, this was still a place where you could get a single family home for an affordable price. You could make a living as a songwriter years and years ago. And then as Nashville started to boom, some major investments that were made in the 80s and 90s, which were very positive to revitalizing the downtown, we started seeing the effect of people who had been out in the suburbs and other parts of the country coming to Nashville and coming to the downtown, the urban core area, to really start investing there. So we saw a pattern of gentrification and displacement that it continues to go through this day. The difference in the last couple of years is that it's really accelerated. And that's where people have felt like they've been taken off guard. And in many ways, it's demand. There's not enough housing for people. And a lot of people from outside of the state came to Nashville, Tennessee, because it's a great place to live, great weather, but there's no state-earned income tax, and it's affordable for standards outside of Nashville. So Forbes magazine came out with a report a few months ago that said you'd need to make $70,000 a year in order to afford to live in the downtown Nashville area, and the median household income here is about 52000 so there's a big disconnect there. Richard Florida, the urbanist from the University of Toronto, talked to me about the fact that just a few months ago for this series that only a third of people in Nashville actually are that creative class, the people who can really afford to live here, while the two-thirds of the others are either low-income or working class who are really struggling right now, trying to find those second jobs or even having to be forced to buy homes outside of the county, even though 50% of the region works in downtown or works near downtown. So it creates a stress on housing costs and also transportation costs. And as we're growing by anywhere from 74 to 85, some people say 100 people a day, 
the congestion is getting worse and worse. So it's created this tremendous stress and this tremendous conflict in a place that used to not have that kind of traffic and those kinds of housing prices. And you've dug deeper into some of those issues like affordable housing and transit and neighborhood change as part of your series this year. Could you talk a little about how you've developed those stories and what you've learned from some of the Nashville residents that you've spoken with? So the first piece was what named the series The Cost of Growth and Change. We decided to make it an explanatory piece. Even though I'm an opinion writer, an opinion editor, this was not going to be the traditional editorial where I'm just talking at the community. This was going to be an original reported piece. So I do all the reporting myself and I work with my colleague, George Walker IV, who's the photographer on this, really telling this story through the eyes of local officials. Mayor Megan Berry was in the first part of the series. We thought it was important to have her voice in it to talk about growth. And at the same time, we had a woman named Sally Dow, who really became the heart of the series. And Sally Dow was an 80-year-old woman in the Edge Hill community, which is near downtown. It used to be a predominantly African-American area because of segregation. And now today, it's one of the hottest markets in the entire Nashville. Again, it's near downtown. And next to her bungalow home, she's got all these tall and skinny half-million to multi-million dollar homes right there. And she's refusing to sell. She even has a sign up there that says, I'm not going to sell. And she told George Walker, I'm not leaving till the good Lord gets me. I'm not leaving till God comes to get me. And that's right now one of the stressors as well is that people are seeing their neighborhoods change in front of them. And the dimension is that you're seeing more and more low-income and working-class African-Americans being affected the most. The areas where they were confined to because of segregation, both racial and income segregation, are the areas now that they're being displaced from. And that's created a sort of crisis. So we're really looking at that through the eyes of people, and not just African-Americans, but eyes of all people who feel that stress that came to Nashville, even as professionals. We profiled a family counselor a few months ago. And in one of the segments, it was called, Can Old Nashville and New Nashville Coexist? And it was a very controversial title for it, but that was the point. It was to have this debate about where are we going? As Nashville continues to rise, a lot of people are feeling like they're being left behind. And that racial component is one of the major elements there. The reality is that even robust growth isn't benefiting all Nashvillians. And this is prompting more local leaders to act. Ralph Schultz is president and CEO of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. Here's Rachel again with a question. Why do you think it's important for Nashville's future to sort of get this right and to really address this inclusive growth challenge? Economic prosperity is something we look at from the individual up. If the individual is prosperous, then the family will be prosperous. If the household is prosperous, then the community will be prosperous. And all of those things that makes a community vital and vibrant and significant to people's lives. I mean, it goes back to why do we all bind together in cities, right? If you start with the individual and not only the right, but the opportunity of every individual to be a part of that prosperity, and you can win at that individual level, then everybody benefits, the whole community. You know, the thrust of Nashville is for the Nashville community to enjoy prosperity together. Nashville is, it is a collaborative place of caring people who want others to succeed. And when we can identify a chunk of our population that is not equipped to experience that vitality or participate in that vitality, then everyone is harmed by that inability of them to participate in that prosperity. So 
So I would tell you, Rachel, this isn't just something that's of interest to our staff. This is something that's of interest to our business leadership and community leadership that really governs this institution. This has been a topic before we joined the Learning Lab. And for some, it is a matter of conscience. For others, it's a matter of economic vitality. But for everyone, it is a matter of quality of life. And they don't want to be looking over their shoulder at someone who doesn't have the opportunity, who doesn't have the, the education, and who doesn't have the access to the opportunity that they have access to. How can cities and regions begin to build inclusive growth? And what role in particular can the business community play? In the second episode of this series, we'll go inside the process as these three regions worked with Brookings over six months to determine who isn't succeeding in their regional economies and to understand why. And you'll meet more of the community leaders and residents who engaged in that process. Here's Rachel once more with Michael Huber, CEO of the Indy Chamber. This topic of inclusive growth is a focus not just for leaders in Indianapolis, but for leaders in economic development, you know, around the country. If you were talking to one of your peers, how would you advise them to start approaching this topic? It's not worth it unless you're willing to really stare death in the face and really unearth the good and the bad. And if the timing and the conditions aren't right in your community to talk about some ugly findings, then you're just not ready. What we are finding among, I think, colleagues of mine who might have had some fear and trepidation of unearthing some of these statistics earlier is that by becoming aware of our challenges, by really naming them, by putting data behind them, it makes it more real. It actually gives us more security that we can rally people to get out in front of it because now we've named the problem. Now we've put a scope around the problem. There's a magnitude around the problem. It's not just a series of anecdotes and fears. And so if you're willing to really confront your fears and socialize them and get the community to understand them, you can actually turn it into a very inspiring conversation that we have the will and we have the resources and we have the buy-in in our community to really address the gaps and make this a part of our next you know, several decades of growth. It is not easy. It is not easy. And it takes you to some dark places. But for us, it is changing the way that we think about economic development fundamentally. I want to extend a big thanks to Rachel Barker and Julia Krager in the Metropolitan Policy Program for their dedication and ideas that have made this special series happen. And to Rachel especially for interviewing all the people from whom you've heard, for writing the scripts, and for being the lead producer for these episodes. As well, my thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Reveredo, with assistance from Mark Holscher, to producers Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna, to Bill Finan, who does the book interviews, and to Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahan, and Rebecca Weiser for design and web support. Our intern is Stephen Lee. And finally, thanks to David Nassar for his support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, where you can also subscribe to Intersections, 5 on 45, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file, and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. 
and listen to it in all the usual places. If you do visit Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. 